Well, good morning, New Day. So good to see you guys. So glad you came out today. So glad to everyone who's chosen to tune in today. However you're joining us, we're just so glad you're here for the continuation of our study through the fascinating gospel of Matthew. Today our text is Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 14. And our theme this week is true religion. Friends, there's counterfeit $20 bills, and then there's real $20 bills. And though they look a lot alike, there are some key differences that distinguishes uh, what is true from what is false. And that's a good premise for our sermon today. That's a good uh, illustration or parallel uh, for our sermon today. There is true religion and there is false religion. They look a lot alike, but there are some key and crucial uh, differences between the two. And that's the very thing we're studying in our text today. Uh, But as we uh, talk about what is true and what is false, this is none other than what the Apostle James highlights in James chapter 1, verse 27. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, when James says that there is a form of religion that is pure and faultless in God's sight, uh, it is implicit in the text that there is a form of religion that is not pure and acceptable and pleasing in God's sight. And I bring this up because in our text today, that's exactly what we see. We see a form of religion that is uh, repulsive to God. And so we all ought to uh, perk up, pay attention. Uh, You know, if we're note takers, grab those notes and just really pay attention because heaven forbid that we think we're practicing a form of religion that is honoring to God, pleasing in his sight, uh, that he accepts as pure and faultless, uh, when in reality, it's something that is false in his sight and is displeasing in his sight. So today, that's what we're covering. Again, our theme is true religion. God, through this text, is going to call us to what is true, and he's going to call us to reject what is false. Now, uh, verses 1 to 14, it's kind of a lengthy passage, so I won't read you the entire thing all up front, as I sometimes do. Uh, Rather, today, we will cover uh, it section by section uh, as we work our way through the text. Once we're done understanding our text in its original context, then and only then will we apply the text to our lives today. But we have to begin with them, but I promise you after uh, dealing with them, we will get to us. So that's an overview of where we're going. Let's jump right in. The first thing that we see in our text today, we're going to call it the instigation. The instigation. Because today we're going to see a major conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, and verse 1 covers the incident that instigated the fight. We read in verse 1, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And this was the act that instigated the conflict. Now, since plucking heads of grain seems like a pretty uh, innocuous activity, a pretty harmless activity, let me explain to you why it caused a massive fight. When the Israelites came up out of their slavery in Egypt, God gave the Israelites his law, and then he brought them into the promised land. 
and included in God's law were instructions for the Israelites to take one day a week just to rest. And that day of rest was dubbed the Sabbath day. And what a gift the Sabbath was to the Jews who had known nothing else for 400 years than working all day, every day, sun up to sundown, seven days a week. Now, God's instructions were pretty general. He just said you need to take one day a week just to rest, take a break from your normal work. Well, the religious leaders of Israel, not wanting the people to violate God's regulations, began to flesh out for the people uh, what it looked like, practically speaking, to go ahead and rest on the Sabbath so that the people would make sure they were doing what God required um, on the Sabbath. And, and so the people would make sure they were not doing what God forbid on the Sabbath. And I believe that this started, as many things do, uh, really uh, innocently. I think uh, good was intended, but here's what happened. Over several hundred years, uh, different schools of rabbinic thought uh, went ahead and added uh, rules and regulations, and then more rules, and then more regulations, and then more rules, and then more regulations, until it got to the point where there were so many rules and regulations to follow on the Sabbath day that it was more exhausting to try to follow all the rules on the Sabbath than it was to work the other six days of the week. So here's a little sampling of some of the crazy rules associated with the Sabbath. And understand, these are not rules found in the Bible. These were man-made rules, man-made regulations that the religious leaders of Israel added to God's law to take one day a week to rest. Here they are. One law specified that the basic limit for travel was 3,000 feet from one's house, but various exceptions were provided. If you had placed some food, say the day before, within 3,000 feet of your house, you could go there to eat it. And because the food was considered an extension of your home, you could then go another 3,000 feet beyond the food. Under Sabbath regulations, a Jew couldn't carry a load heavier than a dried fig, but if your load weighed half the amount of a dried fig, then you could go ahead and carry that load, the half the dried fig, twice. Baths couldn't be taken for fear some of the water might spill onto the floor and wash it, and then you would be working, cleaning your home on the Sabbath. A woman was not to look in the mirror lest she see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. <laughs> False teeth couldn't be worn because they exceeded the weight limit for burdens. If a person became ill on the Sabbath, only enough treatment could be given to keep the person alive. But if you gave too much treatment and it resulted in the person improving in health, well, that was declared uh, to be work. And therefore, it was forbidden and therefore you were guilty of breaking the Sabbath. Friends, on and on and on the ridiculous list goes of man-made rules and regulations and traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day. And so it came to be that it was literally harder to rest than it was to work, which was the exact opposite of what God had intended when he gave the Sabbath command. Okay, that all as context. Now let me bring you back to verse 1. Jesus and his disciples are traveling from town to town to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Back then, they didn't have roads like you and I have them today. So the roadways were hardened paths between farm fields. And farmers would plant their wheat right up to each side of the path 
so that the wheat was totally within arm's uh, length, uh, no matter where you were walking on the path. So here's Jesus and his disciples. They're traveling from one village to the next, and it's implied that the distance of travel between villages was considerable because the disciples go ahead and get hungry along the way. Now, in the time of Christ, there weren't uh, ubiquitous McDonald's on every street corner where if you got hungry, you could just pull over and grab some food. Inns where food could be purchased were uh, very few and far between, even in the villages and friends in between villages, they were completely non-existent. So if a traveler didn't take enough food with him or he found himself on a longer than expected journey and got hungry, he had to live off of the land. Well, God recognized this kind of need and made provision for it in his law. So here were the rules, Deuteronomy chapter 23. When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, but you must not carry any away in a basket. And when you enter your neighbor's field of grain, you may pluck the heads of grain with your hand, but you must not harvest it with a sickle. So you were allowed to satisfy hunger. You just couldn't begin reaping your neighbor's crops and go home and invite the whole neighborhood to a, a block party provided by, you know, your neighbor's crops, okay? But you were allowed to satisfy hunger. You couldn't bring it home for, for dinner to feed your whole family, uh, but if you were famished, you could go ahead and meet the need that you had. So here's Jesus and his disciples on a long journey between villages, and they get hungry, and knowing that God's law allowed for them to take some of the crops, they did so to satisfy their hunger. And since it was allowed, it shouldn't have been the cause for a big fight between uh, Jesus and the Pharisees, uh, but it was. It was. Now, Jesus and his disciples must have been crossing through a field where the Pharisees in the village could see Jesus and his disciples approaching. And they must have had a visual of what the disciples were doing as they got closer and closer to the village. They saw that they were plucking the heads of grain. Because as soon as they arrive in town, the Pharisees level a very serious accusation against Jesus and his disciples. And that's the next thing we see in our text. First, the instigation, and now, secondly, the accusation. The accusation. Even though God's law, as we've just seen, allowed for what the disciples did, understand, the man-made rules and regulations and traditions of the Pharisees did not. So God's law allowed what they did, but the man-made traditions of the Pharisees did not allow for what the disciples did. In the demented perspective of the Pharisees, uh, here's what they were doing. Pulling the grain off the stalk, that was harvesting. Rubbing the grain in their hands, which they would do to separate the edible kernel from the inedible chaff, that was considered threshing. And when you blew away the chaff, that was uh, winnowing. So from the crazy perspective of the Pharisees, Jesus was permitting his disciples to work on the Sabbath, which was a serious violation of the law. So here's the accusation they leveled against Jesus. We see it in verse 2. Here it is. They, they said to Jesus, they said, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And when we read this, we kind of go, oh, wow, because it reveals something about the Pharisees. We just saw that in God's law, what they did was allowed. 
So in what sense was the actions of the disciples unlawful? Well, it was only that they were breaking the man-made traditions of the Pharisees. So what this reveals about the Pharisees is this. They had taken their man-made traditions and rules and regulations, and they had elevated them to be on par with God's own law. But Jesus knew this was absolute nonsense. So what we see next is Jesus justifying his disciples' actions. We just saw the accusation. Now, thirdly, we see the justification. In verses 3 to 6, we see Jesus defending his disciples from the unfair accusation that the Pharisees had leveled against them. Jesus has been accused of lawlessness, of being a scofflaw, of being a miscreant, of being someone who does not care about following the rules. So Jesus now feels the need to defend his actions and he justifies his actions using scripture. First, Jesus says to the Pharisees, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Now, you and I might not be super familiar with that story, but the people Jesus was speaking to were. And in case you're not totally up on the details of that story, let me summarize. Here, Jesus references the time when David and his men fled for their lives from King Saul, who was seeking to kill David. David fled from uh, Gibeah and headed four miles south to the town called Nob, where the tabernacle was then located. And when David and his men showed up, it was the Sabbath day when 12 freshly baked loaves of bread hallelujah, were made, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, normally, only the priests could eat this bread. But on this particular occasion, an exception was made on behalf of David and his men who were weak from hunger. Ahimelech, who was the priest at Nob, let David and his men eat the sacred showbed, uh, showbread despite the restriction of Leviticus 24 that said only the priests could eat this bread. But here's the deal. God was not offended by what Ahimelech did. He did not discipline Ahimelech, the priest who gave David and his men the bread, nor did God discipline uh, David and his men, the ones who ate the bread. You see, the Lord was willing for a ceremonial regulation to be violated when doing so was necessary to meet the needs of his beloved people. So, now that you know that, here is Jesus' argument then to the Pharisees. Jesus is saying, if God makes allowances for his own law to be broken under certain circumstances for the welfare of his people, then he surely permits foolish man-made traditions to be broken for that same purpose. And this is one of those mic drop moments of Jesus. He got him. But Jesus is not done. Wanting to drive his point home further, Jesus continues. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, yet are guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. 
So, so the Jews were commanded not to work on the Sabbath, yet the Jewish priests worked on the Sabbath by uh, helping the people with all their animal sacrifices and performing all the work that was to be done in the temple. And Jesus is saying, though technically they broke God's law, they were guiltless. So Jesus then is saying this, if the priest can break God's actual law, yet be guiltless, how much more so can my disciples break your man-made traditions and also be guiltless? So follow the flow of Jesus' defense. Follow the flow with me of Jesus' justification. He's telling the Pharisees, no one broke any of God's laws. The only thing that was broken was your traditions. And if meeting human need, as seen in the example of David, trumped God's very own law, then how much more so does meeting human need trump your foolish traditions? And if the priests can break God's actual law and be guiltless, how much more so can my disciples break your silly traditions and also be guiltless? And friends, this is Jesus' defense. This is his justification for his disciples' actions. Now, as we move forward in our text, we see Jesus turning the tables on the Pharisees. This argument began with the Pharisees trying to school Jesus about what was lawful and unlawful on the Sabbath, but now Jesus turns the tables and begins schooling them. He's given them a little teaching, and now he applies it. And that's the next thing we see in our text. After the justification comes the application. Here, Jesus is going to tell them what God actually requires of them, and it's not what they thought. So verses 7 to 8, Jesus said this, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Here, Jesus quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And it might seem confusing at first because it almost appears as if Jesus is uh, condemning people for following the uh, system of animal sacrifice that God himself created. But that's not what's going on at all. Jesus is not condemning them for following the sacrificial animal system that God himself uh, had implemented and come up with. He's only condemning those who practice such a system and who fulfill ritual and regulation uh, divorced from a heart of compassion and love and care and concern for other people. Jesus is saying, you can make all the proper sacrifices, you can follow all the ceremonial regulations that you want, but if you do not have a heart of love and care and concern, if you do not have compassion for other people, then none of the sacrifices are pleasing in God's sight. So what this is then is a major rebuke. The Pharisees didn't give one lick about Jesus' disciples or their needs. They didn't care that they had traveled a long way and had become hungry as a result of their travel. No, their only concern was whether or not these men were following all of their man-made traditions. So they cared about rules. They cared about regulations. They cared about tradition. They just didn't care about people. And so Jesus gave a stern rebuke. Now, Jesus has just let them know 
that what God truly requires from us in, in true religion is a heart of compassion towards those in need. Having taught them that, Jesus says, now let me show you what mercy and compassion and love and kindness towards others uh, looks like, practically speaking. So the next thing we see is Jesus giving them an illustration uh, of mercy, of kindness, of love, of compassion. And that's the fifth thing we see in our text. We'll call it the illustration. Picking up in verse 9, he, Jesus, went on from there. That is, he went on from the edge of the town that he and his disciples had just arrived in. And as he moves on from there, uh, he does so with both his disciples and the Pharisees following. And moving on from there, Jesus entered their synagogue, the synagogue of the citizens of that town. Verse 10, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, the Pharisees, asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, now just to be clear, uh, they didn't care about this man, and they didn't really want to know the answer. Matthew tells us that they asked the question uh, as a trap so that they might accuse Jesus. Verse 11, Jesus said to them, which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. And friends, understand, this is something that happened all the time. Back then, they made their living from their flocks and their fields. And so this was a very common occurrence and not the strictest of the Pharisees would ever hesitate to reach in and help one of their animals when one of their animals was in need. So knowing that this was a common practice, even among the Pharisees, Jesus now asks this question in verse 12, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But did the Pharisees say, oh, praise God, here was this man who was in need. He had a disability, and Jesus helped him. Oh, this is amazing. We just, we're so happy for this man. No. No, now they're angry at Jesus for, again, breaking what they considered to be. Remember, remember the rules and regulations of the Sabbath? Oh, you could give someone treatment just to keep them alive. But if you do anything to make them better, that is a violation. You are working on the Sabbath. And this man's injuries, this man's disability, excuse me, it was not life-threatening. So when Jesus made him whole by helping him on the Sabbath, oh, that was the violation of their man-made traditions. So they don't give one uh, lick of care or concern about this person who had the disability, all they care. Once again, just like with Jesus's disciples eating the grain, they didn't care that they were hungry. They didn't care, care that this man had a disability. All they care is that their rules, their man-made traditions, regulations, and traditions were being violated. So they set out to kill Jesus, and that brings us to the sixth and final thing we see in our text. We're going to call it the confederation. So we saw the illustration, and now that leads to the confederation. Now, I want you to think of a survivor. You know how all the contestants, they make alliances? All right, that's what a confederation is. Confederation is an alliance. And we read this in verse 14. Uh, in response to Jesus' healing on the Sabbath, uh, the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus, how they might destroy him. Now, who did they conspire with? Uh, Mark's gospel fills in the details. And Mark tells us that the Pharisees began conspiring with their arch enemies who were the Herodians. 
Now, even though the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other, uh, they hated their common enemy, Jesus, even more. So they uh, formed a confederation whose mission it was to bring Jesus to his demise. And so, friends, what we're dealing with here are just uh, evil, evil men. All Jesus said is that they should pay closer attention to God's laws than their man-made traditions. And Jesus suggested that they care more about their fellow human being than they do their animals. And to the Pharisees, this was a crime worthy of death. So they formed the confederation and they began plotting with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So friends, that's our passage. In case you got lost along the way, I'll, I'll summarize for you. The first thing we saw was the uh, instigation, the incident that instigated the fight. The second thing we saw was the accusation, uh, the Pharisees accusing Jesus' disciples of being unlawful. The third thing we saw was the justification, and this is Jesus defending the actions of his disciples. The fourth thing we saw was the application, where Jesus tells the Pharisees what true religion actually looks like and what God actually requires, which is mercy, which is loving kindness shown towards our fellow man. Jesus then gave him an illustration of what loving kindness, what mercy, what compassion actually looks like. And finally, we saw the confederation where in response to Jesus saying we should care more for people than animals, they say we need to go ahead and partner together with our arch enemies in order to kill Jesus. And now that we understand the passage in its original context, I want to switch gears and focus on what it has to do with our lives today. Uh, I'll be transparent. When I was initially uh, studying this, and I, I rigorously study uh, every text that we cover here on a Sunday, as does Andrew or anyone who might be preaching behind this pulpit, uh, as I was studying it, at first I thought, oh, it's got to be a teaching about the Sabbath. Because all the details of this passage relate to the Sabbath. But I just kept studying and kept studying and kept studying. And I realized, no, that's not the focus. The Sabbath incident, that, that was just the thing that happened that brought up the real issue, uh, which is what Matthew's trying to focus on with us uh, in this passage, which is this. He's talking about true and false religion. Oh, the Pharisees had a religion that they were practicing. They were following the animal sacrifice laws. They were uh, following the man-made traditions and regulations and rituals um, and all these kinds of things. Oh, I mean to a T. And they had a system and they were trying to teach the system to others. And that system is the very thing that Jesus condemns in our passage. So Jesus is saying, you see what they do? That's what is false. That is what is not pure and acceptable in God's sight. This is a false form of religion. Oh, it looks a lot like true Christianity, but it's counterfeit Christianity. It's what is false. It's not what pleases God. It's the very thing that, that angers him. And so Jesus says, let me show you what true religion looks like. And it's what Jesus did. Jesus went ahead and allowed his disciples to satisfy hunger because Jesus cared about people. Jesus uh, went to the man who had the disability with the withered hand and he healed them because Jesus cared about people. When the two blind men came to Jesus, they said, oh, son of David, have mercy on us. And that was just them requesting Jesus's help. And because he had mercy, Jesus healed them. In another instance, a father of a son who had uh, demonic-inspired seizures came to Jesus and said, Jesus, have mercy on us. 
the demon causes my son to be thrown into the water to drown him or thrown into the fire uh, to burn him. Can you help us? Have mercy on me. So friends, having mercy in the scriptures, it's a request for help. Have mercy on me, Jesus. Jesus, help me if you can. And Jesus shows us time and time again in the scripture what true religion looks like. True religion is the kind of religion that cares for people. Back to what James said in chapter 1. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. In other words, it's to care about people who are in need, and it's to help them. And this was the very thing the religious leaders absolutely did not do. Friends, here was the sin of the Pharisees. Simply put, they were heartless jerks. I spent a lot of time thinking about how to word that, and that's very intentional. They were uncaring, uh, uncompassionate, uh, mean-spirited jerks. They just didn't care about people. They, They were total jerks. That was their sin. I know the uh, TV show The Office is not as popular today as it once was, but anytime I come across a passage like the one we're studying today, I can't help but think of the uh, character named Angela on that show. She was the token Christian. And she was obsessed with the rules, not so much with following them herself, but with making sure other people knew anytime they were violating the rules of her religion. But though she was a stickler for the rules in many regards, she was mean-spirited, judgmental, hypocritical, and unkind. Angela reduced the Christian faith to a set of rules that one must adhere to in order to please God, all the while failing to do the very thing that would please God, which is to treat others kindly. And this is just a perfect picture of the Pharisees. Obsessive rule followers who were mean-spirited and unkind. They didn't care about the needs of the disciples. They didn't care about the needs of the man with the withered hand. All they cared about were their rules and regulations. And Jesus says, your version of religion is false. Let me show you what's true religion. It's to act with mercy towards your fellow man. Now, this is hard sometimes to... uh, understand what this looks like uh, lived out in everyday life. So I want to help you to know what true Christianity looks like and what false Christianity looks like. So I thought I'd have a little fun with this, do something I normally don't do. So I have invented two fictitious characters, one named Mark and one named Bob. And uh, Mark is going to show us what false religion looks like. And Bob's going to help us to understand what true religion looks like. We begin with Mark. Here we go. Mark, he's an animal. He's a machine. His spiritual disciplines are off the charts. He wakes up every day at 4 a.m. and he reads his Bible for one hour. As if that wasn't impressive enough, uh, enough, as soon as 5 a.m. hits, a new alarm goes off and he begins praying for yet another hour. He attends church every single week in person. He shows up early. He takes notes uh, during the sermon and he just never misses a week. He is involved in our small group ministry, and he never misses a semester, and our small group's pastor says, amen. Amen, all right. Never misses a semester. Never misses a single week of a semester, okay? And he dutifully shares his faith. However, when Mark is having his two-hour daily quiet time, His wife often enters the room exhausted from caring for their infant baby all night. 
But does he offer to change the baby's diaper and make his wife coffee? No. He's too busy fulfilling ritual to care about showing mercy. Oh, he attends small group, and you know what? He even regularly offers to provide the snack. But you know what he did last week when he went in the store and asked the clerk uh, where the chips were, and the clerk didn't know? He was incredibly rude to that employee. I said Mark is never late for church, and that's because if he gets behind anyone on 91 uh, that is going slower than, than he thinks they should go, oh, he just lays on the horn. And if anyone's at the, 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 the stoplight and, and the light turns green and they don't accelerate a nanosecond after the light turns green, he, again, just lays on the horn, tells them they're number one. And though Mark actively shares his faith, he doesn't do so from a, a heart of care and concern for the welfare of the person he's sharing with. He doesn't truly care if they go to heaven or if they go to hell. He just wants to check off, share my faith off of his spiritual to-do list. So that's Mark. Let's talk about Bob. Bob is not a morning person. Can I get an amen? Amen. And once or twice a week, he actually hits snooze on his alarm clock, which causes him to miss his morning time. Oh, he loves the Lord. He just finds it difficult sometimes to get up. So at least twice a week, he misses his quiet time. Bob does his best to get to church, but you know what? He's got a wife. He's got a handful of kids. And uh, it's just so hard to arrive anytime other than after the first or second song of worship has already been sung. Not much of a note taker either. Bob attends small group and loves it, but he's got a lot going on, and he's not able to uh, participate every uh, single semester. And like Mark, Bob also shares his faith, uh, even though it's not as often as he would like. But here's the difference between Mark and Bob. When Bob's exhausted wife walks in the room with the infant baby, he stops reading his Bible changes the baby's diaper and makes his wife coffee. On the way to church, when the person in front of him at the light doesn't accelerate the second the light turns green, Bob takes it as an opportunity to practice patience. When Bob attends a small group, he too sometimes volunteers to bring the snack, but when he goes in the store, and the associate doesn't know where the chip aisle is, even though they work there? <laughs> he gives them a pass. And he treats them kindly, nonetheless. And when he shares his faith, he does so from a heart that truly cares about the person he's sharing with. He, he, he cares. When Mark shares his faith, no one ever feels uh, love or care or concern. But when Bob shares his faith, though he's not as articulate uh, as, as Mark is, because he's not spending the first two hours of every morning, he's not as articulate, but you know what? His love and his care and, and concern for the person he's speaking to, it bleeds through every time. So friends, do you see what true religion is? Do you see what false religion is? Who cares if you have a two-hour morning quiet time if after your morning quiet time you go into the day treating everyone like a big jerk? 
Our quiet time is intended by God to foster in us love for him and love for other people. Friends, when you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four help us to love God. The next six help us to love people. And this is why Jesus was one time able to say, let me summarize all of the uh, 613 commands found in the Mosaic Law. Let me summarize it and make it all simple for you. Love God, love people. So friends, true religion is religion that loves people. False religion, oh, you can do all kinds of religious ritual. It's not that false religion is like, you know, practiced by uh, Satan worshipers. You know, oh, that's false religion. No, no, no. False religion, it looks a lot like true religion. False religion is practiced by people who come to church dutifully each Sunday. False religion is practiced by people who wake up and read their Bible and wake up and pray. False religion is practiced by people who attend small group. False religion is practiced by people who offer to bring the snack for small group. So you see, friends, we got to really do some uh, soul searching today. You, you can't say, oh, I'm here at church. Clearly, I'm a part of what is true. No, no, that's not like an automatic. That's not a given. We got to be like Jesus. We got to be merciful. We got to be willing to help others. We have to treat people with patience and kindness. Right now, some in our church are doing a 21-day fast, and if that's you, that's awesome, but know this, if you're so grumpy due to lack of food that you are treating others unkindly on the authority of God's word, it would be better for you to cancel your fast and to start acting patient and kind than it would be for you to continue fasting. You see, sometimes we make this mistake. We uh, mistakenly think that the spiritual giants in God's sight are those who rigorously adhere to spiritual disciplines. But that is not how God measures greatness in his kingdom. God's measure is how you treat other people, those closest to you first and then everybody else. Amen? So God's call to us today through this passage is very simple. Uh, he used the gospel writer Matthew to communicate a, a message to us. Matthew wrote this passage under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but ultimately it was God who was uh, desiring to communicate something to you and to me. And, and clearly, as we've now studied this passage in depth, uh, we see that, that God's message to us is this, reject false religion, it's not pleasing in my sight, embrace true religion, which is characterized by loving kindness, which is Bible talk for mercy. And if you'd like to do that today, I want to invite you to join me in our closing prayer. So those of you online, everyone here in person, would you just uh, bow your head, close your eyes maybe just so you can focus a little better, get your thoughts on God. And when they're there, maybe you'd say this or something along these lines to God in your heart. Just say, Heavenly Father, um, I ask today for forgiveness for all the times I, I've treated others poorly. The times I've been impatient and the times I've been unkind, uh, the, the times I've seen someone else in genuine need and just didn't care, didn't lift a finger to help. Uh, basically, God, for all the times I've acted like the Pharisees. For all the times I've practiced false religion. I ask God that you'd forgive me. And God, I ask today that you'd uh, help me moving forward. I don't want to be mean-spirited. I don't want to treat others rudely. I don't want to be uncaring. I want to be nice when I'm talking to someone on customer service over the phone. 
For now I know that false religion is not acceptable in your sight. So God, I'm doing a a realignment today. I'm going to begin measuring my spirituality differently from this day forward. It's not how long my quiet time can be each morning. It's not how many days I don't skip. God, you're, you're measuring by how patient and how kind I am with those closest to me and then everyone else. God, help me to adopt this new standard. Help me to adopt this new uh, measurement of true spirituality that's acceptable and pleasing in your sight. And God, thank you for loving me enough today to confront me in order to help me to get back on track, not to condemn me, not to make me feel terrible, not to get me down, but to get me back on track because you love me. God, I thank you for that. I give you praise and I pray for your help and I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. Do you want more New Day Church in your life? Well, please like and subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Want to take a next step in your faith? Our Church Center app is the best place to get more connected. So just download the free app on your app store today and be sure to choose New Day Church in Enfield, Connecticut. We are able to offer this sermon and all others like it only because of your faithful financial support. Thank you to all of you who so faithfully give each week. If you feel led to support our ministry financially, just go to our website at newdaychurch.cc forward slash give. Thank you in advance. May God richly bless you and we hope to see you again real soon.